and welcome to another episode of the Customers Who Click podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Parry Mam, CEO and co-founder of Phrasing. Phrasing is an awesome AI-powered copywriting tool, useful for email subject lines, push notifications, landing pages, and even direct mail. Phrasing was recognized by CB Insights as 2017's most innovative AI company, while Parry himself was Tech Entrepreneur of the Year at the 2016 UK Business Awards and has even spoken in the Houses of Parliament about how the UK can become a global leader in artificial intelligence. Testing copy, and in particular subject lines, is so important for a business. You go to a huge effort building an email list, designing some beautiful creative, but then your subject lines suck, and so no one opens them. The problem with testing subject lines, though, is that not only can it be quite time-consuming to come up, with, come up with what you feel are five or maybe ten noticeably different versions, but you'll always have the bias of the person who's written them. You know, they, they like to put uh, numbers in the subject line or they have a preference for certain words or sentence structures. AI takes away this problem as it doesn't have that bias. So it can generate 10 or 20 subject lines that are in line with your brand guidelines, but still have that broad range of variety, which will really help you determine what works best and even highlight new ideas that maybe you'd rejected in the past. Emojis comes to mind here. Um, you know, a lot of the companies I've worked with, the brand teams, have, have been really strongly against subject lines. But actually, you know, when, when, when tests have been performed, emojis and subject lines have worked. But anyway, you're not here to listen to me waffle on. So let's get Parry on to talk about the world of artificial intelligence in marketing. Hi, Parry. Welcome to the Customers Who Click podcast. Um, if you could tell us a bit about yourself, a bit of your background, and uh, why, why do you do what you do? Thanks. Yeah. So I'm Perry. I'm... Uh... One of the founders and the the chief executive of Phrasey, and Phrasey is AI powered copywriting. Um, but I'm not gonna like do a big shameless pitch and stuff because nobody really cares about that. You can go to my website and figure out more about what Phrasey does. I think the question like why do I do what I do is quite interesting. So like back in the day before I started Phrasey, I was a brand side marketer for a number of years, and like. I would send out millions of emails and spent thousands of dollars on like Google ads, Facebook ads. And like, I would always try out a whole bunch of different versions and I'd split tests and like multivariate tests, different types of language to see what would stick. And, you know, there's invariably always one that would work really well. So I looked around the market and there is no technology out there that could help you write better language. There's loads of, um, like humans who would say, you know, trust my advice. These like Don Draper's types, you know, sitting in their fancy corner offices on Madison Avenue with their pointy tipped shoes and three piece tailored suits and that. But it's like, that's not really helpful. Cause like, what if like, there's a better way to do it that doesn't rely upon some like Oracle of knowledge. Um, what if there's a way to actually apply the same level of scientific rigor to language that we do to every other part of the marketing mix. Um, so that's why I launched Phrasey because I believed that, that with the available technology at our fingertips these days, there was just a huge opportunity to apply it to the domain of, of language, of marketing language specifically. And it was an area that nobody else was looking at, which I thought was crazy. Fast forward five years, we're a multi-million pound business with like name brand accounts. Um, and I, I can pretty much guarantee anybody listening to this podcast has gotten an email or 
gotten a push message or been served a Facebook ad with language that's been written by Frazee's technology uh, without knowing it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, I can imagine I probably have. Um, I've, I've seen, uh, seen your client list or a bit of it. So uh, yeah, def- definitely have received some myself. Um, and yeah, you, you, you make a really good point. Um, no matter who you work with, whether they're an external third party, a consultant, an agency, or someone you bring in-house, they're always going to have those little uh, biases and their own styles of writing and their own opinions on what really works. But if you've got a tool that just kind of goes, takes in all the data, um, takes in your brand guidelines and things, and then just tells you what you should do, you don't really have that worry. You, know, you, you kind of, well, it's, it's data-backed. And, uh, you know, that, that should be what works. Well, exactly, dude. Like the old way of working was like this, where like you would have an an email going out, let's say like 50% off shoes and you would send a brief to a copywriter and the copywriter would then, you know, write a couple of subject lines, this, that, and the other. They then send them back to you and you would, you know, judge them and you would put in your two cents over what you think you should say. You then show it to your coworker and they'd put in their two cents about what they think you should say you then show it to your boss and they put in their two cents about what they think you should say. And the end result, the one you go with is not the one with the highest probability of success. It's the one that was favored by the most persuasive person in the organization. Now the problem with that is you're trusting somebody's gut or you're trusting some, somebody's um, sort of role in the corporate hierarchy with no actual data to back things up. That's the old way. The new way of working is actually much smarter. Instead of briefing a human, you brief Frazy. And then Frazy writes the stuff. And then using like technology that can spot linguistic patterns hidden to the human eye and devoid of, of the biases you were talking about, can then say you should use this language and not that language, which results in a bias-free access, like a democratize and bias-free access to marketing language um, that doesn't rely upon the old way of thinking, the old Don Draper dinosaurs who sort of used to dictate how you would say things. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've seen what it does. I've used it myself. So I, I've seen the, uh, the 10, 20 subject lines that Frazy will spit out for every campaign. And, and you do get a wide, you know, a decent variety of, uh, of options there. So you, you can see that there's no real bias there. You know, some people would go, we've always got to say 50% off in the title, in the subject line. Um, whereas another person would say, well, no, let's just hint at it. Let's say there's a, you know, massive discount available, open this email. And then Frazy kind of gives you all the different options and, and the in-betweens and then tells you what's worked. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And like the, the important thing there is like humans, like it's a weird thought. Humans are actually like way less creative than we actually give ourselves credit for. Right. Um, so, so like, like, um, if you give humans a brief to like do a certain thing, then, or, or to write a certain thing, then they'll write a bunch of stuff, but it's only within their sort of constraints in that little small little universe of possible language. But the thing is, there are 
billions of ways of saying the same thing, like 50% off shoes. There's actually like billions of ways of conveying that message. The human brain is not set up to consider the huge sort of combinatorial explosion of possible language variants out there. And that's why like machines are particularly well suited to it because they can iterate through all of the possible ways of saying the same thing and then filter it down based upon your brand guidelines and business model constraints and, and, and stuff and then predict which ones within that sort of constrained box are going to be best, right? So in a weird way, like humans are super good at being creative with this like big picture sort of if uh, um, uh, ethereal sort of str strategic stuff, like this sort of galactic strategy. But when it comes down to the actual sort of machinations of marketing, humans are actually not that creative. If you hear something in the background, I just seem to have activated Siri with my voice. Galactic Sorry. strategy, but when I comes down. If you want to know what Siri says about that, I can let you know later. Yes, I mean, this This probably leads leads quite well into the uh, the next question. of um, So, you know, every, I'm sure you see it all over social media, um, like LinkedIn, Facebook groups, kind of every, every few days, I probably see email is dead. Um, in fact, I've even seen it in emails. Um, people think it doesn't really work anymore. People, you know, it's almost like banner blindness. Um, people have an inbox, they kind of scan through it a little bit, but, but the actual performance isn't there. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty confident email is, is still great. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on it? Um, where do you see the future of email and, and generally customer communications and, and how brands should engage with people off uh, their platforms? Yeah, I mean, if, if I had a dollar for every time someone said email was dead, I would have at least like $7 and that's a lot of money. Um, like, like the, the, the simple proof point to prove that email is not dead. Um, all of these like coronavirus emails, which every CEO from every company in the world has been sending out, um, um, just to note to the listeners and stuff, we're um, taping this like in mid-March, just when all the panic has set in and whatnot. Every single CEO across the world has sent out a message about coronavirus via email. Like there's one unique power that email has over nearly every other advertising channel. And that's that it's first party owned data. So you think about Facebook ads, Google AdWords, you're ultimately beholden to a third party who controls that data. If you have a message you want to get out on Facebook, your organic reach is, is pretty much zero and you have to pay to access that audience that you've already spent money building. With Google, you have to pay a Google tax to get traffic these days, right? Especially as ads fill up more and more of, of the first page and whatnot. Whereas with, with email, um, it is uh, the only digital marketing channel that does not require um, third parties to actually access. Like, sure, you need an ESP to send stuff out, but that's operational. It's your data. It's your own data. It's, it, it, it's completely yours, so that's why, actually, I think even more so, email is becoming more and more important because as you have these monopolistic actors um, uh, who um, control walled gardens of advertising reach, um, this sort of um, interoperability, technology agnostic aspect of email means that your email database is the single most valuable marketing asset that your business owns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like you say, you know, the organic reach of, of 
Facebook's uh, is is nothing really. Um, pages are you know brands spent years and years working on them and and brought in whole teams of people to build up Facebook pages, um, create their community engagement, and now you've got to pay to actually reach those people. So two or three years worth of work is now kind of almost wasted because you simply have to pay pay to reach them anyway. So you might as well just be running ads. Um, oh, even Facebook yeah, groups, totally. we're, we're seeing the same thing. You know, I, I know a load of uh, smaller businesses and, and freelancers and independents who started Facebook groups to build what they felt was more of a community than a page. And even there, I think we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of restriction on reach. Um, and I, I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if ads are on the way um, for groups as well. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I don't know like a huge amount about the mechanics of, of Facebook ads and Google ads and stuff, but I do know a fair amount about economics and how markets function. And when you have monopolistic actors, they will do things in their favor because there's no real option. Like there's not really a substitute advertising channel for Facebook because Facebook is Facebook. There's not really a substitute for Google because they own the vast majority of, of search reach out there. So you're, you, you kind of effectively have to pay a tax to them if you want to market using those channels with email. There's no tax. Um, you, you basically have open access to your, your data. There's no sort of um, um, money-based throttling considerations, which you need to, to bear in mind. And it's your data. You can, you can be transient with it. You can, you know, if you're using one ESP, you can move to a different ESP. You can do what you want with that data. There's, there's, there's no restrictions. Um, so it is the single most sort of democratized marketing channel online. And by virtue of it being this sort of um, interoperable structure, there, it, it's not conceivable that monopolistic actors can actually take over and, and uh, extract um, obscene rents from the marketplace as you're finding with different online advertising channels. But I'll stop ranting right now because <laughs> I never know who's listening. Yeah. Um, would you say that, I mean, do you think that maybe things like GDPR are almost, maybe not leveling the playing field there, but giving almost giving Facebook and Google a bit more of an advantage because you've got to work harder to get that the permission for the data if you want to email or, uh, or send SMS. Whereas, you know, people are still searching on Google, they're still on Facebook, and if you want to reach them, you have to pay. Yeah, like GDPR, when it first hit, there's a bit of a slowdown, and then things sort of came back up. Um, and I think it's, it's one of these things where GDPR should have had much more of an impact on the Googles and the Facebooks because they collect data. I mean, in many more spurious ways than people sending offers via email. I don't think we quite know what's going to happen with those because nobody has really um, uh, um, tested it in, in court yet. Um, now this, this will have a, a, um, a greater effect, I think with the CCPA in California, just by, by virtue of the U S being a much more um, litigious jurisdiction than Europe is. And one of the big boys is going to get tested and they're either going to need to um, open their books up and let people know how they're actually um, how how their data is being used and processed, 
or they're going to have to pay, you know, awfully big fines and whatnot, much bigger than like the, the 2 billion, which they, which the EU ding them for, which is a drop in the bucket. Um, so like stuff like that, you know, for consumers is broadly a good thing. It just takes time to wash through to see what the net impact of legislation is because the wheels of justice uh, turn very slowly. Yeah, yeah, I understand. E- email is the owned platform, you know, you, you own the data, you should have more control over it. Do you see companies uh, being creative with how they use Phrasey or using it for maybe not necessarily marketing purposes? Um, you know, for example, I think um, obviously a lot of companies send out transactional emails. Um, and I feel that a lot of the time they're seen as emails that the company has to do, and so they do them. Whereas actually, they're the emails that the customer wants to receive. They're order confirmations, delivery statuses, and things like that. So, do you have uh, have you seen many companies using Phrasey to improve those kind of transactional emails and performance there, or or are there some other use cases people have uh, used it for, or or spoken to you about using it for that maybe you hadn't considered before? Well, certainly. Like, I mean, we got customers using us across the gamut of of marketing, like not just with email, but, you know, across all sorts of of, of different marketing channels and within different email programs and stuff. But I think actually the real impact um, that Frazy has beyond, you know, optimizing subject lines and Facebook ads and stuff is the actual like organizational impact it can have. Um, and I've seen this manifest in two ways that I totally didn't expect when 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 I first launched Frazy. The way number one is fundamentally changing um, their um, revenue models. So, like, I mean, I got one great example. We work with um, a big uh, arts and crafts firm in the U.S., um, and their mo for years and years was to um, discount, 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 coupon, coupon, coupon. And their entire business was fueled by sort of deep discounting stuff. When they started working with Frazy, they were actually quite um, taken aback that a lot of the language Frazy was recommended actually veered away from hard discounting and veered more towards, you know, focusing on product benefits and stuff like that. Um, so they're a little bit loath at first, but as the test ran and it ran again and it ran again, Frazy kept proving out that focusing on hard discount tactics isn't actually what was driving response from customers. It's what the trading team thought customers wanted, but customers vote with their wallets. And they were and they found actually over time that like by not offering hard discounts and stuff like that, they were actually um, revenue neutral, but selling stuff at a much higher margin. So that had a real impact, not just on the CRM function, but wider in the whole business. And they've actually veered away from hard discounting and margin hitting sales um, and more towards sort of like value-based sales. And it's had a real impact um, on their entire commercial function. The second area that Frazy's had a sort of... Um, um, impact which i didn't expect was from an organizational standpoint where people have become very um anesthetized towards ai because every tech company in the world is talking about ai this and ai that and they'll go and they'll sign a million dollar contract and then go like so let's talk about ai now and then a project will never really start and never really finish and 
and and the market has become quite disenchanted to it. So what a lot of brands have done is they've bought Frazian because it, it's a it's like it's a small problem. Like it's a very small point solution. You know, optimizing subject lines or optimizing push messages or optimizing SMSs. It's, it's a small problem with a big impact that uses real AI um, without these sort of like huge complex um, operational overheads. So what a lot of people have done, you know, the um, great example here is um, uh, one of our very first customers, a fellow named Saul Lopez, who worked with us when he was at Virgin Holidays. Now he's moved on to Dixon's Carphone. Um, and at both companies, what he's done is he's brought in Frazy early doors as a sort of, you know, like immediate impact AI win, which has then freed up more budget for him to invest in um, in these longer sort of more pervasive AI projects. And the benefit of that um, is that there's been this entire sort of organizational perceptual change about what AI is and actually getting people along that journey instead of it being this whole sort of massive, complicated, fear-based project. Um, so those are two impacts that I found really curious throughout the years that I'm pretty proud of. Yeah, definitely. Especially the, the arts and crafts one, uh, I think is really interesting. The fact that it's not just that Frazier has improved their email performance and sales. It's the fact that it's actually got make them go, we need to rethink our whole model here. You know, this is telling us we, we don't need to be doing the discounting, which is not really growing our business. We can scrap that. We can just give them slightly different content and you know value-based content and we're going to make twice the money because we're just we're selling might be saying selling the same number of products or maybe slightly more but we're not giving away that you know 30 40 percent discounts every time yeah well totally right and i think it's this whole concept like in 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 one of the chapters of the book chapter nine i think it is um i i juxtapose um two different philosophies of advertising this short-termist philosophy versus a long-termist philosophy. And the short-termist philosophy is, is exactly that, where it's all sort of discount, discount, um, short-term metrics, last-click attribution, management by spreadsheets. We got to hit this, quarter, this quarter's number right now, so let's sell, sell, sell. And what that does is it devolves marketing teams into being nothing more than a virtual double-glazing salesman. Um, and, and people lose trust in brands and they, and they become very transient and the whole concept of brand loyalty ceases to exist. Um, this is juxtaposed by this sort of long-termist viewpoint where it's going, you know, you want to like retain customers for a long period. You want to build up the um, equity of your brand and you want to be able to leverage that brand equity into like sustained customers and stuff, right? Um, and what I've really seen is the brands that sort of double down on this, you know, hard discounting, double glazing salesman approach, um, they they just can't keep doing that because they're just hitting their margin, hitting their margin, and people become indifferent from their brand to a different brand. Whereas the brands like Virgin Holidays, like Dixon's Carphone, who actually focus on building this brand and like really sort of doubling down on their brand voice and optimizing these sort of, you know, top line engagement metrics are the ones who are really standing the test of time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that I've, I've bought things online where I've, you know, done my, done a search on Google, I've found the product on a website and it's been cheaper or there's been a discount or whatever. I've bought it and I would have no idea what that business is. I could not tell you where I've bought like certain Xbox game, Xbox games or whatever. Um, but there are other websites where 
I might pay a bit more money or, you know, there's a more custom experience that, you know, it just, you kind of start to fall in love with the brand. You really like the idea and the values of that business and you're happy spending more money because you're getting kind of a, a good feeling about working with that business and, and purchasing from that business as opposed to just the product that you're receiving. You bet. You bet. And, and this has like real world impacts also. I mean, um, you know, as, as we're speaking now, the world is going through an unprecedented economic shutdown and there's going to be winners and losers as a result of, of all this coronavirus stuff. Um, and the winners are not going to be those who are, who, who, whose budget lines depend upon these sort of short run sort of, um, these short run hard discounting sales who live from, you know, uh, month to month cash flows is going to be the businesses who have a long term strategy who are going to be the winners. Absolutely. So you mentioned you mentioned your book uh, just earlier, which we we haven't really talked about. So um, yeah, you've you've just launched a new book, The Language Effect. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, who, who's it for? Well, just uh, tell us a bit about it, really. So the book is called The Language Effect, Why AI-Powered Copywriting is a Marketer's New Best Friend. What it effectively is, is it's the culmination of everything I've learned in the last five years of running Phrasey. And then what, what my, my vision is, not just for Phrasey, but for marketers of the future. What it effectively does um, is it outlines the language effect, which is the, the measurable impact that better language can have on your bottom line. And it interlays this with myriad examples um, of brands who get it and brands who don't. Now, um, the language effect is enabled by AI-powered copywriting, which is the category of technology which Frazee is pioneering. And this is where you use um, advanced technology to write better copy than humans by themselves. Um, And the book itself... I mean, I think it's a good read. I'm biased. Um, but but I'd say that, you know, it's written in a very accessible style because I certainly realized that, um, that, that the entire idea of using AI to perform this sort of quintessentially human task, writing language, um, can be a little bit existentially challenging for um, some, some people. But actually... It's not. And what Frazy is doing is it's truly empowering people. It's democratizing um, access to advanced copywriting techniques, um, which was previously a walled garden of, of, of Don Draper types. Um, so yeah, the um, book, you can go to the, the languageeffect.com uh, or just go onto the Frazy website and you can find it there. Um, and yeah, um, you should totally buy it because Perry needs to eat. Yeah, no, it sounds really good. I'm definitely going to have to get myself a copy. What are some of the common myths you uh, you see about AI, or what, what are some objections people bring up if uh, when you're talking to new prospects or or new clients about uh, how to implement it? Yeah, I mean, we, we don't really get objections these days about AI and stuff like that. But I think for the market in general is people have um, unrealistic expectations for what AI can actually do or what it's you know on the verge of doing there's lots of like stories in mainstream media about you know ai wrote a i don't know a friend script or ai is um is, is writing fake news watch your back so that's like like the the technical term for that stuff is bullshit um 
the the actual sort of like commercial applications of AI are um, very very small defined point solutions like optimizing short form advertising copy like Phrasey does. Um, the the entire idea about having this sort of sentient marketer where you click a button and your entire marketing campaign is complete is completely off the wall. It's off the wall for a couple of reasons. Reason number one is the technology is nowhere near there yet. You still need humans to guide AI technology. And part of the entire like phrasy model is to have this sort of like human driven check and balance system at, at every every step of language generation through to distribution. Secondly, we're a couple of huge technical innovations away um, from, from unconstrained AI having any commercial applicability whatsoever. And I think people often sort of see the news or they hear these like fancy whizzy sales pitches from tech companies going like, oh, we've got AI, we're doing this, we're doing that. But when you get down to the guts of it, AI just does a few things. It does a few things really, really, really well. And by virtue of the AI focusing on those few um, point solutions, it then frees up marketers' time to be better marketers. And that, to me, is um, where the real myth about AI is. AI is not necessarily a time saver. What it does is it takes away some of the mundane tasks from your job so you have more time to focus on important stuff but you're going to be just as busy focusing on that stuff. Yeah, so it's, it's very much a supporting technology at the moment. It's not something you, it's not a plug and play, uh, this will run over your campaigns and, and make you loads of money sort of thing. Well, no, and, and, and I would say whether we're talking about AI, automation, what have you, I'm always a little bit skeptical of these sort of um, turnkey solutions where you set them up and let them run. Perfect example is what it's March the 19th as we're speaking right right now, right? So um, uh, it's it, uh, six days ago, no, sorry, seven days ago, the um, NBA announced the season was going to be suspended. And now we're on a sort of like virtual lockdown in London until further notice, right? Now, there were going to be a lot of people who this time a week ago had all these fantastic marketing automation campaigns set up where you had all your customer journeys and all the experiences sorted and this and that and, you know, so forth. Um, and, and there's probably some forms of AI helping, you know, route people in the right direction down that right decision path and whatnot. And then the world now looks completely different from how it was a year ago. And there's not an AI on the planet that could have predicted where we are in just the span of seven days. And that's the real danger about these sort of set and forget systems, whether it's AI automation or somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. Shit happens and machines cannot predict the unpredictability. Um, and that's why... Um, I, I'm not worried about my son growing up in a world where like AI makes all of the choices because it's not good at dealing with ambiguity, whereas humans are. Okay. Yeah. It's, that's makes sense. It's interesting. Um, I suppose that kind of leads to the next question. Where do you see the future of AI, particularly marketing? Yeah. I, I mean, I've certainly learned that like predicting the future is a fool's errand. Um, if we go and look at the, predictions from 2010 on the way the world is supposed to be in 2020 
barely any any of them have come true. No one could have expected, you know, um, social media to skyrocket to, to to absolute ubiquity. No one could have, you know, like seen all of this stuff happen and whatnot. Um, what I do think will happen, though, is that um, people are um, going to get burned by a lot of profiteers and charlatans, predominantly from the tech industry, selling them AI that doesn't actually provide real value. And people are going to need to start justifying um, and tracking investment in AI because there's no sense in having a shiny new toy if that shiny new toy doesn't work. Um, and this is one thing that I really hope for, actually, because one thing that we've always done with Frazy since day one has been like completely transparent about the impact Frazy has on, on bottom lines. We've actually got it baked into our system from day one where you benchmark what Frazy does versus what humans do. Um, but not many companies do that, and they're expecting a leap of faith. Um, and I think that the leap of faith was cool for like one year, two years, three years in times of buoyancy. Um, now that you know we're we're going into a period of economic uncertainty, maybe recession, who knows? Um, justifying every dollar and proving that spend is going to be more and more important. And there's going to be more than a few AI companies who are caught short. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know ROI is obviously incredibly important, uh, especially you know if you're signing off on uh, on new technology and new projects, you you've got to at least have some uh if not an estimate of what it's going to return a an idea of a target that you'd like to see and an idea of whether that's achievable or not um but you know i i have seen uh in, in a, one or two companies that i've worked with in the past they've they've signed off on on big projects because it's it's those things that every business should have you know it's, it's like when people were building facebook pages and every business went, we've got to have a Facebook page. We need hundreds of thousands of, uh, of fans on there. Every business is going, we need this technology because everyone's saying we should do it. And they kind of get involved in these projects, don't really know what they're going to do with them. Um, and, it, and it's just, yeah, a waste of time and money when you could have been working on something that's, you know, ROI positive and, and generating revenue. You bet, man. You bet. Cool. So, um, do you have any, uh, any any pet peeves when it comes to uh, to marketing or, or email marketing in particular? Yeah, like so. I first got into marketing and and studied it in uni and took it on as a career because I thought that there was you know this really interesting, um, ambiguous sort of social science element through it. I mean, I'm a you know. Um, computer scientist slash linguist slash math uh, slash um, marketing guy. But one thing I've always liked about marketing is that it's, it's perfectly imperfect. You know, you, you, you've got all these sort of spreadsheets and models and stuff, but then human beings, the way that they act, the way that they buy stuff is very unpredictable and it's really interesting. But I think in the last 10 years, marketing has become ruled by spreadsheets um, and, and, and it's become sort of not very fun. Like when I started doing marketing, it was fun because you, you got to experiment, you got to try new stuff. Um, you, you got to be creative. And now the, the majority of marketers spend most of their days in software platforms, like executing kind of boring jobs and stuff. 
um, or managing spreadsheets. And that's my biggest pet peeve because there's a lot of marketers out there who are incredibly bright, um, incredibly creative, incredibly like willing to, to take chances and take risks and stick their necks out for it, but they're being beaten down by spreadsheet wongs who just want to see what the you know um, um, impact of changing their bid on a Google AdWord by 50 cents is. So that's my biggest pet peeve. But I think we're starting to see the light at the end of, of the tunnel because people are starting to realize that managing by spreadsheet is a short-termist tactic. And if you manage by spreadsheet, then you're going to be a double glazing salesman because you get all these short-term sales and you'll reinforce that as the right way of doing things. But the long-run impact of doing that is that your margins are hit and your, your, your customers become transient. So while it's a big pet peeve, I do, from what I'm hearing in the market, from what I'm seeing uh, with our customers, I do believe that the end of the tunnel is coming near um, and we're about to enter a golden age of marketing where marketers are allowed to be marketers again. Okay, yeah. So people who, or companies who are ruled, yeah, ruled by stats, the data, the, the Excel spreadsheets and don't allow the creativity um, to really come out. And then like, I guess uh, also like you mentioned, you know, those trying to get those PPC bid change optimizations done to see what change that has when, you know, that, that is something you do pretty much every day. Really, depending on your budgets, you're going to be doing that every day, maybe several times a day, depending on how much you're spending. And it's that it's just the top end, uh, you know, it's the top of the funnel. It's uh, it's not really a long term strategy because if you stop doing that, it, it stops working. Whereas you want to have that kind of uh, that long term strategy of how do we give people the best possible experience with a brand that they kind of uh, you know they want to engage with, they want to trust. Yeah, exactly, dude. Like there's so many bright people um, whose time is being wasted by staring at spreadsheets and fiddling with ESPs and Google Ad Manager and all this kind of stuff, you know, and the opportunity cost of having these people focus on boring tasks is the is access to the most creative part of your entire business. And I think people need to realize what that real tangible opportunity cost is. And in fact, this is this is one of the themes um, which I cover in the language effect where we actually quantify what bad mundane uh, uh, language is costing you. And, and, and for like, you know, enterprise brands, this runs to the millions by virtue of, of trying to account for every single dollar at every single moment, you're actually costing yourself money which is, you know, it's just a, a counterintuitive truth. Yeah, exactly. So finally, if you could kill off one marketing channel or tactic that you, you just really hate, what would it be and why? Oh, man, that's a tough question. I mean... Well, it doesn't have um, to be one you hate, really. It could just be one, <laughs> one that you just want to see gone. Well, I don't need to worry about email because it's already dying, right? I think we covered that as the top of the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, uh, I think the tactic that bugs me is that people um, use tactics in online marketing that they would never use face-to-face. -face. So, like, you would never walk up to, like, someone and put a countdown timer in their face and go, if you don't buy the next seven minutes, this deal is gone, and then sit there and wait. And, and, and watch them sweat while the countdown timer goes down. 
I just think like we should talk to people like they're people, whether it's online or offline. Um, and that's my biggest pet peeve. This like, it's like high pressure, urgency driven, clickbaity, tacky race to the bottom marketing, um, which was the way of the 2010s. But my vision for the 2020s and what marketers are telling me, what their vision for the 2020s is, is we're going to let clickbait die the death and stay in the last decade. Whereas this decade brand is back and the marketers who understand that and are doubling down on that are the marketers of the future and the marketers who are going to lead this industry forward. Absolutely. And uh, you know, it's, it's kind of what you mentioned earlier with the, uh, the arts and crafts business. It's, it's not about these short term tactics that kind of almost force people to click um, and manipulate people to click and, and make that purchase really quickly. It's about building that relationship and giving people a great experience so that not only do they want to make that purchase with you, but they're actually going to come back to you again because they, they think, Oh, that was a really good business. Uh, really like the product or, um, you know, I had a you know, really good customer support uh, experience. And when they want to buy another, a similar product or another product in that kind of category, your brand is the one that comes, uh, comes to mind first. Most deaf dude. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, really interesting stuff. Right on, my dude. Thanks for having me. So don't expect AI to significantly change your life, but it's definitely worth considering as it can still have huge benefits for your business. It's a bit of a supporting tool right now in that the value of AI is that it frees up marketers from the tasks that are a bit of a time drain and that we're not actually very good at and a little great at and allows us to focus on things that we are great at. And the big part here is that, you know, as mentioned in the podcast, AI removes the bias, not only from the copywriter, but also within the wider team as well. You know, quite often copy will go back and forth between copywriters and the email team. And an individual then generally decides which one or two subject lines to test. So it kind of becomes a case of who's the most influential person in a team who can argue their case best. With the billions of possible variations in a subject line, the different ways you could present an offer or a, or a product, as humans, we just can't possibly come up with a strong set of options that gives us a broad variety there. We're limited to a certain way of thinking. So as individuals, we'll always come out with a very small group of variations ourselves. But also, it can help you understand your business better and your customer's motivation better. Any business that is focusing on its marketing efforts around discounting is always going to struggle. It's not going to build a loyal customer base. And without a loyal customer base, your revenue is dependent on the discounts. So you end up in this spiral to the bottom. Using AI can help you very quickly determine which messages resonate with your customers best. And that can then feed back into other areas of business, including acquisition and customer service. As for emails itself, we're pretty confident it is and will continue to be the dominant and best way to market to your audience. If you're building an engaged and quality customer base, you're also building a large, valuable email database as well which only the customer themselves can take away from you. If you treat that email list with respect, it's going to continue to generate huge amounts of revenue for you at an amazing ROI. That's all for today. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe for future episodes. And if you've got any questions about AI and language and marketing, please ping over to will at customerswhoclick.com. Uh, don't forget to head over to the languageeffect.com to check out Parry's book, and you can download the first three chapters there for free. In the next episode of Customers Who Click, I'll be speaking with Nick Rigby, the CEO of Yodel Mobile, one of the best mobile growth agencies around. We'll be discussing the mobile customer journey and key things to bear in mind when launching an app. 
But until then, keep your customers clicking. Yeah.